Welcome back to the Career Therapy Podcast, where we explore the intersection of work and well-being. I'm your host, Coach Marty, and each episode I interview mental health experts, coaches, and industry insiders to bring you practical insights and tips that will help you build a meaningful, rewarding, and sustainable career. So join me as we explore the path to career satisfaction, one conversation at a time. In today's episode, we sit down with Brittany Procknow, a relational therapist who strives to help individuals and couples live life passionately. Relationships are the cornerstone of living quality lives, and she strives to help others build a sense of self and a sense of belonging. Her work encourages others to move beyond complacency, both professionally and personally, by enhancing self and relational awareness. Together, we discuss workaholism, how it develops, what it looks like, and what you can do to break the cycle and begin living a more connected, fulfilling, and engaging life. If you like the Career Therapy Podcast, please leave us a review on Spotify and iTunes, share this episode with a friend, or leave us a comment on YouTube so we can help more people navigate their way to a better career. Spotify also has some really great engagement tools. So if you look at your app, you'll see some questions that we've put in the description. We'd love to get your feedback on what you're struggling with and what topics you'd like to hear in future episodes. That's all for the intro. Now let's dive into this week's conversation with Brittany. Brittany, thank you so much for being here today. Can't wait to dig into our conversation. Uh, there's so much about this topic that I actually don't know a lot about. So I, I'm going to be looking to you for all the insights and expertise. Uh, but before we jump into it and start talking about workaholism and addiction and all the different things that go behind that, um, I'd love for you to just give us a little bit about your background and how you got into this work. Sure. So I am a licensed clinical social worker. Grew up in the Philadelphia area. I am now living in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, better weather and you know just more sunshine all year round. I actually was really interested in journalism at first when I was looking to go to school, and then got really interested in psychology. And I have an aunt who's a social worker, and she was like, "Hey, if you're really interested in this field, I think social work is actually going to be the better route for you to go." And I'm so glad that I did. Um, she introduced me to her work. She was a clinical director at a co-occurring disorder um, day treatment facility. So it treated both addiction and mental health. And that was kind of my first real experience in seeing exactly what therapists do, what it all looks like. So yeah, so fell in love ever since. That's incredible. And when you were doing your work, um, when did uh, workaholism or addiction start coming into it? Was it something you studied in school? Was it something that came up through your clients, a combination of both? What What were your early experiences with addiction? Sure. So my background's in family therapy and addiction. I've always wanted to do addiction. I thought it was just fascinating um, for multiple reasons as to how people started using, people would feel like a sense of connection within the groups that they would use with, people would feel isolated and alone from friends and family otherwise, like just the holistic realm of what addiction brings to a person. And in a past position, I worked in an intensive outpatient facility, which essentially means three hours of therapy, three times a week, plus family therapy, plus individual therapy. So there's a lot of therapy for people who attended these programs and it was for professionals. So it was for like doctors, lawyers, pilots, people who had um, really intense professions. And a lot of them would talk about how 
they would use because of the stress from work, but then they would also throw themselves into work when they weren't using. And so it's felt like this sort of thing of like, okay, work keeps me going, but then without drugs, I can just throw myself back into whatever it is I'm doing throughout the day. And that started my interest in going like, okay, what is this workaholism thing? How is it affecting people, especially in this like post-pandemic life or during the pandemic life where we could work at all hours of the day? So that's been my peak of interest. And when it comes to addiction, I think, um, you know, one of the pros and cons of the therapy world becoming so much more mainstream, uh, less taboo, less scary for people, um, you know, there's a lot more people going to therapy now than I think ever before. And with that comes um, maybe a dilution of the terminology, right? You have people saying, oh, I'm OCD, I'm anxious, I'm, oh, I'm addicted to, you know, white lotus i don't know <laughs> yeah uh, everything right <laughs> everything's an addiction right and so i'd yeah. love to just start by um maybe getting into your definition of addiction and uh if you could just maybe give some some examples of of what people might think is an addiction but is actually maybe just maladaptive strategies versus like you know mm. or maybe it's a spectrum you know what how do you look at addiction and define it yeah, I definitely look at it as a spectrum. The definition of addiction is a behavior that gets repeated despite the negative consequences. So the negative consequences, especially for workaholism, could be that relationships start to suffer, that your hobbies start to go to the wayside, that it's all you can think about morning, noon, and noon and night. Your self-care starts to diminish. Like these are the types of things that people with workaholism really start to experience in terms of what work means to them. And how does that develop over time? Because, you know, with from what I've seen and, and experienced in in my work is that these things tend to sneak up on people, or maybe they have an inkling that it's coming, or they they sort of see warning signs, but they're being rewarded in some way. Um, you know, the typical thing that I hear about addiction is that it's it works until it doesn't, right? Like whatever you're doing mm -hmm. is it's you're doing it for a reason. You're using work or you're using um, drugs or whatever it might be in order to uh, respond to a situation that you don't have any other way to respond to. How how do you how has that shown up in your work? Is is that accurate? Is that is that something that you've been that you've seen is it a slow build or is it kind of something that I don't know where does it come from how is it rooted yeah it to what you're saying it's like it's the solution to a problem until it becomes a greater problem and in my work I've seen it become a slow build and I'll use like drugs and alcohol as an example where someone would start drinking you know, in college or in their twenties as adolescents feeling like, you know, insecure and then want to go to a party. And it's like, yeah, everyone else is doing it. So I'll just jump into, and it starts casual and then it grows into more of a, okay, now I'm doing this every day. Now I'm doing this by myself. Now I'm doing this to like ease the sense of dis-ease that I'm experiencing. And so with work, it's like, there's this idea of the adaptive child, the adaptive child is typically perfectionistic, overachieving, really tight in the body, really hard on themselves and has like really harsh thoughts or like that really loud inner critic. And then the antithesis to that would be the wise adult. The wise adult is more insightful, compassionate, curious, feeling a little more relaxed in the body. 
And we all have these two parts. It's just that the adaptive child gets praised and especially gets praised in work settings. So people will tie them sense of selves to what they do. And if what they do is constantly around the sense of achievement, especially when it comes to work, finances, I mean, we look to work for so many things, like a sense of purpose, a sense of security, all these existential things that really have evolved over time that haven't been there before. So I think that that's also part of where workaholism, it one, the actions get praised. Two, it fulfills a sense of self that may feel lacking and unsustainable, that fulfilling a sense of self, it's it really is something that I see so much in why people get paralyzed in their career development and after a layoff or whatever it might be. And we've talked about layoffs in the past where not only are you losing your job, which is, you know, a pretty big piece of our lives, but you're losing that sense of security for the finances. You're losing the um identity that comes with that title and that role. You're losing the reputation that comes with being part of that company. Um, God forbid it's your own business, which I think a lot of people will tie themselves way up into. Um, I know in one of my first uh, businesses that I tried to build, uh, my business partner and I had very different reactions to closing that business. Because for me, it was because it was a joint venture, I never fully put my identity into it. I always had like a little bit of detachment and detachment we can maybe get into, whether it's good, bad, or other. Um, and they had made it a very big piece of their identity. And so for me, when it ended, it, it didn't feel like I had lost a part of myself. I just kind of moved on to the next piece of work that I had to do. Whereas for them, it was a much maybe longer journey because they had sort of really made that a big piece of their identity. And then they had to build a brand new identity out of the ashes of that. And so I do see that very often. And I almost always see it in um, the breakdown of it, where someone says, uh, I don't have a job right now, so I don't have any worth. Or I don't have, um, I lost my job and now I feel like I'm not, I can't even sell myself as this thing. And one of the ways that I talk to people, I'm like, just because you're not currently being paid to be a marketer, does that mean that you've lost all your marketing skills? Like that you don't, like, why does that identity get lost just because we're not receiving a paycheck this minute? And the way I sort of break it down is like, I'm a coach. Am I only a coach when I'm on a call with someone getting paid? Or am I still a coach in those 30 minute increments in between, you know? And so as you work with people and you kind of dig into this identity piece, why obviously it gets rewarded and it it has a lot of benefits, but like maybe we can just dig into the concept of identity a little bit. What, what is identity and how, how does it develop and how, why is work becoming our, why is, why is making work our core identity a dangerous thing? Yeah. It's such a good question. And it's so big because, um, I think that people often turn so many different ways to, for that sense of identity, right? Like, and and to kind of backtrack, like, it sounds like they do a really good job of separating, like with the people that you talk with around, like, these are the skills that no one can take away from you. Someone can take your job away from you, but you still have all these skill sets, values, like you're still you. So there's like the doing and the being. And there are a lot of resources that no one can take away from someone. It's a the channel on which they're 
executed in might be the thing that gets taken away. So when it comes to things like identity and how we identify with work, it's like we live in a very individualist culture. Like we're here in the United States. We are all about like being the best. We're all about what can I bring to the table? What's a company going to give me? How, how can I look like the star of the organization or the company that I'm in? And when that is like the the thing that people gravitate towards, it's almost like no amount of um, promotions, money, anything can fulfill that empty status, like satisfaction that's in a person, right? It's like they, you can keep chasing it. Eventually you're going to hit a goalpost, but you can move it 10 feet further and say like, that's still not enough. So I think that people's identity gets wrapped into the doing because from a young age, we kind of get that, right? It's like the person who's good at math in school or the person who's good at writing, the person who's a daydreamer, the person who, you know, teachers would say like, you know, oh, well, they're just like, quote unquote, the bad kid. And so they get get kicked out of class. Like, it's like, there's these things that kind of happen along the way developmentally that we start to integrate into our sense of self. And I think that that plays a lot out in the workplace, the work setting, how we see ourselves in work. And that's kind of where this all stems from. And it really does start early, right? One of the first questions we ask kids is, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? And one of the first things we're asked as professionals at a networking event is, what do you do? And I see that stress people out so much. And, you know, it's kind of interesting when you go to different cities, people might have different ways of introducing themselves. Like in Colorado, they'll say, where do you ski instead of what do you do? Um, And so we see these like little, little changes here. And I think One of the things that as we dig into this, I want to break it down into a few areas. The first piece is how it becomes a sense of our identity, which we're we're touching on here, but then also what happens when we try to change those patterns, right? So if you're addicted to something or you're utilizing something to fill that hole, right? To to attempt to fill that gap, but there's really no end to it. Um, What are the alternatives? What is the opposite side of addiction? Yeah. I think that there's a lot of opposites, like um, the Johan Hari, the opposite of addiction is connection. I think that's a piece of it. I think that there is a level of feeling good enough. And that doesn't mean that it's feeling good all the time or being happy all the time or excited about whatever it is that you're doing all the time. But it's more about, can I widen the like tolerance of discomfort in whatever happens next. Like when, especially how jobs are now is you probably have been talking to people about things like layoffs and organizations changing, that there is a lot of uncertainty and it's getting in touch with the, the internal resources that will remain there despite if the job's there or not. So I think that's a huge part of it. Um, kind of like the, what happens when we start to alter this, the thing that comes to mind is like sports. So uh, players who can no longer, who have lived for a game, they've lived to do this. And uh, the two that come to mind, and by the way, I'm not like some sports guru by any stretch of the imagination. So, you know, this is a very loose analogy, but think of like the Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, right? Like, so it's like Michael Jordan was still making the speech about how he was cut from his high school basketball team. 
even when he was being celebrated as being one of the best players who's ever walked on the court. And Kobe Bryant also had this immense career who pivoted. I mean, he was making children's books. He was starting to like gravitate towards a sense of fulfillment that was outside of the game and was able to kind of have a more fluid identity. Whereas it may be someone like Michael Jordan, don't know for sure, don't know him, but like has a more like fixed persona and identity of who he is. And that when it all lies in one thing, it becomes an unstable aspect of identity to really lean on. So it really is more about the narrowness of it. Um, it's, it's, it's about the fact, and I think that's going back to the isms and why work all working can become an ism is because it's not just that, oh, you work a lot or you have a good work ethic or that you're trying to provide for your family. It's that it's sacrificing all the rest of the things, right? So what are those core pillars that we need in our life? Because, right, we can't stop working. It's not like, oh, I can just cut out drinking. You know, you have to go to work, right? Um, yes. and, and I think that's like a similar issue that comes up with eating disorders, right? It's like you, you can't not mm-hmm. eat, right? So you just have to redefine your relationship with it, which I think is what's kind of difficult about these things, especially when a lot of times distracting yourself with work because your life is maybe a little bit difficult really does work. <laughs> you know, it can it can really fill every second of the day if we let it. Um, and so as we do sort of dig into it from that perspective um, and try to play that game between the adaptive child and the wise adult and sort of, you know, let them work together what are some of the strategies you've seen people implement in order to create that space and be more mindful and and bring in a little bit more of their life into it so that they can focus on all the different pillars? Yeah. I'm going to pull from like working in addiction treatment and what I think those settings have really allowed people and then I'll bring it back into how anyone who's not experiencing treatment can kind of do this as well. The thing with group treatment was that there was a sense of belonging among people who were there for the same mission. And it's kind of like um, the analogy I can use for like an everyday example is like going to like a big box gym or going to like CrossFit, right? And so it's like, you have people doing their thing individually and like wandering about and they come in, they leave, they don't talk to anybody. They have their headphones in and they're good. Then you have a group of people who are in it together. They're cheering each other on. They're doing the same thing. Like that there is a mission for that day that they're all trying to accomplish. And so it's sort of similar in the sense that no one's doing it on their own and that there's a group of people who have this like cohesion in the way that, yes, they're on the same mission. They have similar experiences and struggles and that they relate to one another. And I think that that sense of belonging is really imperative, especially when it comes to workaholism, because it's taking out the idea that someone has to do everything on their own. And that they're alone on this journey, they're doing it to fulfill a sense of self. It's all about kind of like that individual mindset and more thinking about relationally and what that can bring. So when you have other people and other aspects of life to look forward to, I think that's a huge part of breaking out of this, I need to work 
to feel okay or to feel like I'm enough. And that really is like when I, whenever I've done research on addiction or talked to people about addiction, one of the big things that comes up is it's, you know, there's the concept of being a dry drunk, right? So you're not drinking, but you're not doing any of the work to, uh, you know, change your relationship with the anxiety or whatever it might be. You're not building community. You're not tapping into the other aspects of life. You're just not doing a thing, right? And so how do you sort of look at that concept of the difference between um, when, when we're trying to get out of addictive behaviors, the difference between just not doing the behavior and building a life that enables you to not need that behavior. I, I, I'm not sure if I'm saying it quite right, but how would you conceptualize it? Yeah, I conceptualize it as abstaining versus recovery. So if recovery means to strengthen and to heal, then it really is getting to the problems that this thing has been looking to solve to really start to heal them. And that's a really hard process because it's not as clear cut as having a broken foot and you need a cast for six weeks to heal it. It's more of, again, an internal journey and that can be done with other people as well. And I think that someone who's just abstaining is like, okay, I just won't do this thing, but then what else am I going to do to fill my time? And what happens when these uncomfortable thoughts and emotions come up and what do I do with those? And I think when people are trying to, when, when we're using workaholism or, or any other isms to kind of distract ourselves, let's say, uh, from the struggles of life, I like how you hit on that concept of tolerance and connection. So we need to learn how to better tolerate the things that are happening, but then also reach out to people to connect and to, to build those relationships. But I do think that a lot of the reason that people turn to addictions, whether it's workaholism or alcoholism or any of the other things, um, is because relationships have been something that's very difficult for them. Or maybe the relationships they had were unhealthy and, uh, you know, fostered a lot of, a lot of the things. So, so let's say you're someone going through this and you're like, all right, I'm working 80 hours a week. I'm neglecting all these other areas of my life. I'm going to put myself back out there, try to join these communities or build these connections, but that's going to trigger the emotions that maybe initiated the workaholism in the first place. So what happens when those cycles start and what does recovery um, versus abstinence, what does recovery actually look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it looks hard. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It's I to like, to what you're saying, it, it is like, okay, now I have, I'm experiencing the uncomfortability of what it's like to engage in some of the things that I've been neglecting for so long. And I think this is where having like a therapist or a coach can really help guide the process because we're trying to do it all on our own. It can feel daunting and it can feel like we're really on this Island, like in our heads and in these emotions are uncomfortable. And then just kind of like white knuckling it and then moving on to the next day. So the process is not always linear. It's something that I think is kind of like throwing things at a wall, see what sticks. Um, a lot of times I like to tell people is like, what are some interests that you've had when you were younger? Like, 
whether that's, you know, oh yeah, I used to play baseball or I used to run or I used to do art. Like, so if there's anything that was once there to rekindle that interest and desire to do something. And typically there's groups and communities, especially nowadays, it's like, you know, there's a lot of meetups, there's a lot of online groups, even like, there's just a lot of ways to be able to do a lot of different hobbies that someone could re-engage with. So it's kind of starting accessible and then working your way up. And so as we're thinking about rekindling those things, um, do you have any examples of maybe folks you've worked with, maybe they're struggling with workaholism or, or one of the other isms? Uh, I want to, I think a lot of times the the media portrays things as like these epiphany moments, right? I have this epiphany moment and I never drink again. I have this epiphany moment and I like quit my, like if you just think about the movie Office Space, right? He spends yeah. the whole movie, you know, after being hypnotized, like detached from work and then eventually he becomes a construction worker and that's where it ends, right? All, you know, going off into the sunset. And I think one of the things about what you said here is it's not a linear process. It, you might have starts and stops. It might take a few tries to even build the muscle to be able to put boundaries in place. Um, you know, you, you talk to anyone who's quit a substance and there's like maybe a dozen times that they've gone, all right, first I had to do a day, then I had to do a week, then I had to do a month and a year. And so how can we conceptualize the, the length of the process what what is a realistic viewpoint on what it looks like to both be <laughs> to be a workaholic a workaholic and to mm -hmm. change your workaholism because i i think that maybe that's a very going back to the fact that all these terms are a little bit pop culture right now um mm -hmm. i think it's maybe not clear in people's heads what exactly a workaholic looks like versus someone who just has a good work ethic and what recovery looks like versus i don't know someone who just like is maybe even destroying their career in response to that right because you could very easily go all right well i'm not going to be a workaholic so i'm just not going to focus on this and then 10 years 10 years from now you don't have a job anymore because you've kind of just let the house burn down um right so <laughs> what are your what yeah. what what is like a realistic maybe we could just go through an example of someone who's gone through it or or maybe a, a conceptual uh you know avatar of it like what does that journey look like from um the initiation in our youth to the, you know, falling into the workaholic habits to the maybe coming out the other end with a more healthy balance in life. Yeah. I'll start with a conceptualization. And then as I'm doing this, I'll also like think of a story to kind of match it. So Love it. there is, this is from Adam Grant and he has this, like, he breaks it down into two, two concepts of passion, harmonious passion and obsessive passion. Obsessive passion is I cannot put this thing down without feeling I'm going to panic. So if it's that you're stepping away from work or the idea of a vacation is anxiety inducing, I think that's definitely something that could be um, a factor in workaholism. 
if someone has more of a harmonious passion, it's that putting this thing down actually is helpful. It's healthy. I can step away and I can feel okay in stepping away. That my sense of self doesn't alter when I take a vacation or do something differently or kind of like how you mentioned with like, even like your business partnership and splitting and it's like, okay, I felt good doing this. Whereas like the other person really struggled like that, that, that could be like kind of the harmonious versus obsessive passion. I, in working with people, and I'm thinking back to even like the addiction piece of like, working people are struggling with addiction and also having these like really challenging job positions. And there was a client I was working with who was actually going to school um, for theology and like, you know, thinking about like, okay, like what does the future look like? What does, you know, what does this all mean? And then is there a willingness to pivot? Because it is like, I'm enduring all of this kind of struggle and hardship and going through a really rigorous program and also going through this program of development in terms of letting go of what addiction looks like. And then coming out of it and kind of going, I don't know if this is really for me. I don't know what's going to happen next. And so the idea around like the uncertainty and being able to pivot is also I think an imperative factor that helps someone to say like, I'm not tied to the thing that I'm doing. Those values, those skill sets, they're still there. And I can come out of this and pivot into whichever way I see best fit for my life. It's kind of like the sunk cost fallacy. Like I don't have to be tied to this type of thing. Yeah. And it, so this is, I think, where uh, we can start maybe bringing in mindfulness concepts, right? Because I, I think there's a lot in what I've studied about meditation and and deten- like uh, there's there's a lot of concepts around acceptance, right? And I think one of the things that is really hard to articulate about acceptance is, well, there's a number of things, but the first thing that comes to mind here is there's this fear that if I accept who I am, including my limitations, that I'll never succeed or that my life will fall apart or that, um, you know, something bad is going to happen. Right. And, and that a lot of our motivation is tied to fear of failure in, in life in general. Um, so when I talk to people and they say, I'm not feeling motivated, how can I motivate myself? Um, Typically, the only way that they know how to motivate themselves is through imagining their life falling apart and then <laughs> and then going, yeah, and- holy cow. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And then panicking. And then, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just say that self-compassion or acceptance is not self-resignation, that there is accountability is part of acceptance that it doesn't take that away it's that when we're dealing with like the really harsh inner critic to think of like meditation type terms of like when that inner critic is so loud it also isn't helpful to keep berating your oneself right like when those thoughts come up like those are not fun thoughts to have so the idea around self-compassion is like it's okay like nothing is falling apart you can still breathe through this and that can be another like kind of simple technique of like, I can breathe through this and it can be okay. Like 
you know, not answering this one email is not, does not mean that the world's going to fall apart and I'm a terrible employee and I'll never have a job again. So it's kind of taking it back to basics of like, and I say basics, more like simple thoughts of the here and now, and that it doesn't mean that, you know, we're just all going to be like, you know, all right, jobless and, you know, just hanging out. And it's like, oh, cool. Cause like, you know, acceptance. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things, right? Cause like there might be situations in which parts of your life are falling apart, right? Like that's why we need Mm -hmm. to even address the workaholism in the first place because you're neglecting a relationship and the person might be leaving you. Right. And so to just go, I accept my life and like nothing's really falling apart. It's like, well, maybe there are things and you have to accept that that's a reality, but then also accept every part of it. And I think the, the problem with the acceptance stuff is uh, we want to accept the good things or we want to spend more time accepting the good things or, uh, but it's really hard to accept the whole thing. Right. And man, we could Mm -hmm. just go like (laughs) a spiral with that thought. But one of the things that, um, it, it brings up for me. And I was having this conversation with someone recently about, I forget who the quotes from, but they talked about how, if you, if you really want to be accepting of your life and let go of your fears, which I think a lot of this is tied up in, um, you know, this idea of like, I need to be a workaholic to control the future or to control my situation or to feel like I'm in control at the very least. Um, And that idea of control, we can maybe get into a little bit, but there's, if you're going to let go of the fear, you have to also let go of the hope. And that allows you to actually be in the moment with what's currently happening to your point. Um, I like the example of the email, because this is something that comes up with everyone that I coach and myself included. I remember years ago, I was sending an email to someone that I'd had like a horrible informational interview with, like I completely choked, couldn't even say words. Uh, I was back in college. I like didn't know what I was doing. And then six years later, I was like, I'm going to email this person and just be like, thanks for the lesson, you know? <laughs> and it it was the scariest email. It was like, literally, it took me two and a half hours to write. It was maybe like three sentences long by the time I wrote, finished writing it. And then I had to have a friend send it because I was so anxious at the time. And uh, it's so funny to look at that versus the way that I you know, can just hop on a podcast, you know, with anyone and and have a conversation yeah. and not choke um, that gap between those two things. But like, there were so many ups and downs and spirals from there to here. And there's still so much room to grow. And I do think that um, one of the things that I'm noticing, it's like, how can we be in the present and let go of that fear, but also we have to let go of that hope but also we still want to know where things are going to some degree so that we don't have like a panic attack. Yeah. <laughs> but then the goals can like, can almost spiral us back into our bad habits. It, it's a real mess. And <laughs> this yeah. is where it becomes so hard to like uh, really define these things. And that's why it's maybe, you know, easier to just be like, go meditate. And it's like, okay, well, meditation might bring up a lot of your addictive behaviors. Like what right. do we do with all of this? Um, I don't know, I guess clusterfuck. <laughs> sure, yeah, love that term. Yeah, it kind of makes you think of like, um, so I, like <laughs> I'm in the yoga community as well. And so there is this sort of brand in the yoga world that's like, I'll just like travel and just like do whatever. And like, cause like, you know, self-compassion, but there's like zero level of like, let me like have a sense of urgency to like 
send an email or do something with that. So it's, it's like, there's these kind of like the spectrum of like, oh gosh, like, how do I send this email? And I'm having like super like anxious moments about it to like, everything's whatever. <laughs> so, um, I like to think of this as like, accept as a verb and acceptance is not always like the final destination that if it's more of a skill then it is this thing that we need to have at all times. So this is kind of where I think in a way it's like self-help perfectionism kind of comes into play of like, but I need to have acceptance. I need to be more self-accepting. I need to show self-compassion. And like, you know, there's all these things that we quote unquote need. And that it's not that those things are bad. It's that when we think that it's going to be that it needs to be a certain way at the moments we need them to be in at any given time that it, it starts to get, messy and can really be overwhelming. Like, like you're saying, like there's all these like scattered parts. So if we break it down to accept as a verb, you can breathe in the moment and you can also plan for the future that there's like breaking it down in time in terms of like, I can think about what the next five years is going to look like maybe for this, these 20 minutes of time. And then the next moment is like, okay, but now I'm going to, let's say, send the email or, you know, do this task or, you know, do the things that are in the immediate. It's giving ourselves the ability to be flexible without feeling like it has to be a certain way all the time, or that there is that fear of like, if I show myself compassion, I'm then going to be this person who doesn't get anything done because that can also be a fear too. Yeah. And it really is one of those things where I think, um, again, the, the fear of acceptance is like, well, the worst, I know what the worst parts of me are. Mm -hmm. So if I truly accept the worst parts of me, then I'm going to do those things 100% of the time. And I think maybe this is where that binary thinking perfectionism comes into play where it's like, you know, throughout my entire life, I've always had like a I'm too binary with most things. And I, it's something I consistently (laughs) am working on. And, um, and one of the things that I find when it comes to like, I don't know, working out or something, we talked about this on recent podcasts is like, I mean, I feel like I'm either not working out or trying to work out every day. And there's like no in between with that. When in reality, there's a lot of gray area that I'm just not giving myself credit for. But there's a really funny thing that happens in there where to your point, if I show myself compassion, I won't get anything done. But that's ignoring the part of you that does have drive, that does have interest, that, you know, one of the things I've noticed is I used to get really worked up if like I'm, you know, uh, I'll set a goal. I'm going to go to yoga every day and then I miss a day and then I get really freaked out about it. And I just have to remember, keep reminding myself that like there's only so much time I can sit on a couch, like truly, like there is a breaking point where I have to get up and go for a walk. Otherwise I'm going to feel like my body's in pain, right? Like you'll get bed sores if you never leave your bed. And so like, it might be very, it might be like three months before that hits you. It might be whatever. And I think the, where this gets confusing though, is we want to learn how to trust ourselves. And we want to be Mm -hmm. like, you know, I'm naturally going to want to work out if I just allow myself to be present in the moment and listen to what my body needs. I'm going to want to eat, uh, you know, something healthy if I listen to myself. And I think where some of this stuff gets really warped is that like, if you're drinking or working or anesthetizing and numbing yourself to how you're feeling, that's, I think, where 
you can go five years without working out. You can go a decade without eating well because you're constantly anesthetizing yourself to how you're feeling, both the good and the bad. And I think that that's where uh, we can get really stuck in this inflexibility. Um, and I, I like what you're saying there about the difference between flexibility and perfectionism and trying to, you know, play with those a little bit because it it's that fear is only legitimate if we continue to ignore all of the natural things that uh that are happening and and the problem with like alcohol or something is that it hijacks your actual chemistry and and can make you more slothy or whatever it might be so mm -hmm. I, I, when when we look at building in that flexibility and building in that perfectionism um or not building in but like dealing with our perfectionism and showing that compassion it might bring up some hard truths about ourselves. It might show us that we'll never actually have a six pack <laughs> because it's just not something we care about, no matter how much we beat ourselves up and berate ourselves. And I liked what you said earlier, where it's like, we don't do something, we berate ourselves for not doing that thing. And then we berate ourselves for berating ourselves for not doing that thing. And then we berate mm -hmm. ourselves for berating ourselves. For berating, you know, it's like, yeah. it's turtle, and it's turtle. Yeah. And so, um, when we do start accepting ourselves, I think there's harsh realities that come with that. And one of them might be, oh, this is my attachment style or, oh, I actually can't change as much as I imagine myself being able to, or at least I can't change in the time frame that I imagine I could change in, or I can't actually you know, berate myself into good health or into less work or whatever it might be. Um, so how might how, what are some of the things that will, what are some of the realizations about ourselves that tend to come up about attachment styles or about um, the ways that we are in life that like are going to be probably difficult to accept? Because as soon as someone learns about their attachment style, they're like, well, how do I change it? You know, like that's like right. the initial reaction to everything. <laughs> right. It's, it's so true. Yeah. Um, I think, something that you were saying as like you were talking about this like right it's like there is a part of like you know you best um you're the, like when you're saying that like i there's only so much time that i can sit on the couch and feel okay sitting on the couch before i feel like i need to move but like when i think oftentimes when people say if i show myself compassion or acceptance insert any I'll say kind of the more you know kinder realms of that then I will and even in that statement it's coming from that sense of fear of like I'm gripping onto this thing so tightly that any idea of inserting something else means that I have to let go and there is a level of like that there is drive there is the ability to accomplish and achieve tasks and those are things that are already there. It's that now it's like practicing different skills and a different way of being that will feel uncomfortable. And that doesn't take away all the other skills or anything that's already there. So I think that's a huge part of it because it's like getting in touch with sense of self, what is happening? Like the idea of like attachment, it's like a lot of times any of the isms, right, are attachment strategies when we don't feel secure. And so then we'll then cling to whether that's work or substances or exercise, even like that there's like our relationships, like there's all these things that we cling to, to feel okay. 
And it's a strategy to feel like I'm feeling that sense of panic or overwhelm. And this is the thing that I go to. So I think it's recognizing the things that we cling to. And also when we're almost like fearful of trying something new and how we try and negotiate or become fearful of adding in other aspects or strategies because doing something different is going to be challenging and it's going to be hard and will definitely put different skills to the test. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Career Therapy's Unstuck Coaching Program, which was built to give you the personalized support you need to advance in your career without fear and turn work-related anxiety into professional accomplishments. When you enroll in the Unstuck Coaching Program's monthly membership, you get immediate access to all of the coaching resources you need to crush it in your job search. This includes two one-on-one calls with Coach Marty every month, weekly job search support group sessions with the Unstuck community, access to the Unstuck curriculum, which guides you through every aspect of your job search from strategy through negotiations, and an invite to the Career Therapy Slack channel where you can chat with Coach Marty whenever job search questions come up. Want to see if the Unstuck Coaching Program is right for you? Head over to careertherapy.com and schedule a free consultation with me in order to find out. I think this is also a tough part for us to, to accept and to chew on, which is anytime we try to address an issue, whether it's um, a mental health issue or an addiction issue, workaholism, whatever it might be, there's a like a low-key goal that this will just go away someday. Like, I will never have to think about this. I will be light as a feather. And, uh, you know, everything will, you know, it's that perfectionist mindset coming back in, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that I've been doing personally for quite some time, but also trying to be more, it also helps being more accepting of others and foster that connection in those relationships that you mentioned earlier is accepting are unhealthy aspects, right? And um, I'm reading a book right now uh, called The Myth of Normal. And it's like, how can you expect, like when normal's unhealthy, how can you expect yeah. to have a have a life that feels good, you know, in a way? Uh, I'm still reading it. So that's the takeaway. But, <laughs> but no, uh, no. the basic thought there is like, you know, if all of our food is highly processed, And the food we eat has a massive impact on our chemistry and our chemistry has a massive impact on our mood and our mood has a massive impact on our ability to work out and our ability to work out has a massive impact on our way of showing up at work and in relationships and our relationships have an impact on how we it goes in a circle, right? It just it goes very back around. Life is so complicated. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, and then we pull out the rug from one of our coping mechanisms, which is the addiction. And, uh, you know, some people go cold turkey with it. And sometimes that works. And sometimes that's dangerous and things like that. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, as, as we talk about, you know, perfection and acceptance, I think also accepting that your life is, you are an unhealthy, you're both healthy and unhealthy. And it's, it's, I think a big piece of it is like, 
trying to balance the scales a bit rather than trying to just be 100% healthy all the time. Cause that can be its own avoidance strategy of like, you know, building that. And I'm, I'm curious, it can also, well, and I, I believe it can also lead to more relapses when people are trying to be perfect because it's either I like, I'm either a workaholic or I'm totally chilling in the yoga community. <laughs> it's like yeah. there's there's no room for the in between, and so you end up vacillating between the two sides. So what what would be your um, thoughts on going cold turkey, whether that's good or bad, or or some something in between, and how to how to approach this in a way that doesn't lead to, I mean, maybe relapses are part of the process, but that that we can relapse in the healthiest way. I don't, I don't even know how to phrase yeah. these things because they all seem so binary. Sure. Yeah. It's like, um, part of it is recognizing the states and emotions that are there that you're trying to numb or fix. And so it, in like the, the relapse process, a lot of it really is getting to know what are the perceived problems that this thing has been trying to solve? And a lot of it is internal. When we get in touch with what's happening internally, we're kind of able to become aware of it. And while we may not catch it right away, we can become aware and start to say over time, okay, I'm noticing this thing is there. I'm noticing that I'm starting to work a bit more that the boundary that I set about shutting off my laptop at 8 p.m. has now turned into 8.15, 8.30, p.m. And now it's just a matter of, okay, practice is better than perfect. And I'm going to go back to the boundary or I'm going to go back to the commitment that I chose to make for myself so that I can feel better in all areas of my life. Yeah, I think that's that's really incredible because that's that also addresses like how to notice when things might be going off the rails, right? And and building in that like okay, there is a maybe margin of error that I'm operating in, and as long as I stay within that margin of error, okay, we we can keep getting back on track and and not fall off, you know, fall off the the rails. Um, I know we're getting towards the end here, and I, I wanted to just maybe dig into a couple of thoughts around how you see this uh, come together in terms of our identity again. So I want to just bring it back to what we started with. As you go through this process of, accept of acceptance and letting go of perfectionism and letting go of the workaholism and all these different things, there almost needs to be a new sense of self that is developed. And when people are thinking about shifting, even, even with this sense of identity, it's, it's identity is formed in relationship with others, right? So when people are trying to build their identity, there's sort of a, a, a push to like go into a black box, figure out your identity and then show it to the world, but it has to be relational, right? So um, as, as maybe someone is sitting at their desk, they're like, maybe I'm a workaholic, maybe I'm not. Maybe I have some bad tendencies. Maybe I have some good tendencies. I, But I think pretty safe to say that everyone is feeling some sort of isolation um, or some sort of loneliness based on the statistics in our society right now. So 
yeah. you know, with the concept of, of community being such a counter effect um, or connection being the counter effect to uh, addiction, what are maybe some easy takeaways that people can, maybe not easy, but some clear, like tangible things that people can do to take the spotlight off of themselves? Because I think in our job search, in our careers, in our online presence, you know, like you and I both have websites, mm-hmm. right? It, it, it kind of forces you to be very self-centered, right? Um, yes. What can we do to, to get the spotlight off of ourselves in some tangible ways? Yeah. Um, Cause there is this very much like there's the individualist point of view and then there's a collectivist. And one way is volunteer to go and be in community and th- like that really is a mechanism to look outside of yourself and to be in community and doing something that's more altruistic. Another way is the ability to kind of look around and see what, how other people are thinking and doing, like where that's calling your aunt and seeing how she's doing, like doing something that's so intentional to say, I can switch from being focused on myself and what I have to do and my job to take the pause and relate to somebody else. That it's more of like the relational thinking aspect and making that super intentional that I think could really help. The idea of like sense of self, I always like to think in terms of the values. So there's in like motivational interviewing, there's like this huge like list of values and there you can Google online, like list of values. There's going to be a bunch of sites that have them. There's probably going to be like 80 of them. And it's going and listing like maybe 20 and then maybe 10, five and starring two out of those. And then recognizing is this value moving towards or is this value based in fear? Like I've like some people will say, oh yeah, it's like financial security is definitely a value. And it's like, okay, is that something you're moving towards? Or is that because you're so afraid of losing? And so then when it's based in fear, you can recognize like, what are the actions that I'm taking each day that are making me cling to something that I can maybe loosen the grip of? So if that is, let's say to take this example, if it's checking your bank account every single day, maybe it's like, okay, today I won't check it. And I can let that be. That it's moving towards, I'm afraid of this. And I have the courage to take a step into the fear rather than letting this thing or this fear dictate everything I do. That is such a great thing for us to end on is, is that being courageous and stepping into the fear. And just to recap some of the things that we talked about today, you know, addiction is a behavior that gets repeated despite the negative consequences. So if we're thinking about our work or whatever it might be, look at the consequences of the actions and 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 analyze it from that perspective versus maybe just uh, berating ourselves again for, for everything that we do. So you could easily do that. Um, there's the need to differentiate between the doing and the being. And I think that gets down to, you know, who we are as a person, which is much more relational than we might think, and what we do as a profession. Um, 
I love the concept that connection is the opposite of addiction. And we really should be searching for that sense of belonging rather than achieving. Maybe um, we could do a whole nother episode. <laughs> but, um, the, <laughs> yes. the idea of harmonious versus obsessive passion, accountability is a part of acceptance and letting go of that binary in order to listen to ourselves. I, I really appreciate you going into all these different details. And, you know, this is such a big topic and I feel like we covered some broad strokes of it. And obviously there's so much more that we can go into, but I hope if people are out there and they're maybe feeling overworked, they're putting in those 80 hour weeks that they can just take some time to start the process of, of being present with it before trying to change it so that they can, you know exactly what it is you're trying to change versus, oh, I heard this podcast. Now I need to stop X, Y, and Z. It's like, be more mindful before just jumping into <laughs> all these things. Um, but Brittany, if people want to learn more about your work and what you're doing, where can they find you? Sure. Um, my website is bproknow.com. I have a newsletter that you can sign up at. I will email you like a blog every week with some awareness and action. It's kind of the things I like to write about. And Instagram is Brittany Procknow. I'm active on those. Um, not too active on other platforms. So I'll leave it there. Wonderful. And we'll link all those below. Brittany, thank you so much for joining us today. Awesome. Thank you so much, Marty. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you found this conversation to be helpful, please like and subscribe wherever you are listening. We also appreciate it if you take the time to leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help us spread the word and get these ideas out to more job seekers looking to build their careers and improve their lives just like you. If you'd like to learn more about career therapy and see our different coaching options, you can head over to careertherapy.com to learn more. Thank you again for stopping by. We wish you all the best in the future of your career. Have a good one.